Hello there, and welcome to Down to Sleep, a podcast of softly spoken stories to help you get the rest that you deserve. Today it's episode 19, and it's A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. If you found this podcast useful and you would like to support it, as well as get double the amount of episodes, you can join me at patreon.com slash down to sleep. For a few dollars a month, you will support the podcast, get a bonus episode every single week, continued readings as an entire reading of Alice in Wonderland, The Wizard of Oz, as well as these episodes that you're hearing are twice as long. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Let's go ahead and take a nice deep breath, get ourselves comfy and settle down and tucked in, and we'll begin. Chapter 1. The Period It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven, we were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received, for good or for evil, in the superlative degree of comparison only. There were a king with a large jaw and a queen with a plain face on the throne of England. There were a king with a large jaw and a queen with a fair face on the throne of France. In both countries it was clearer than crystal to the lords of the state, preserves of loaves and fishes, that things in general were settled forever. It was the year of our Lord 1775. Spiritual revelations were conceded to England at that favoured period, as at this. Mrs. Southcott had recently attained her five-and-twentieth blessed birthday, of whom a prophetic private in the lifeguards had heralded the sublime appearance by announcing the arrangements were made for the swallowing up of London and Westminster. Even the Cock Lane ghost had been laid only around a dozen of years, after wrapping out its messages, as the spirits of this very year last past, supernaturally deficient in originality, wrapped out theirs. Mere messages in the earthly order of events had lately come to the English crown and people, from a congress of British subjects in America, which, strange to relate, have proved more important to the human race than any communication yet received through any of the chickens of the Cock Lane brood. France, less favoured on the whole as to matters spiritual than her sister of the shield and trident, rolled with exceeding smoothness downhill, making paper money and spending it. Under the guidance of her Christian pastors she entertained herself, besides with such humane achievements as sentencing a youth to have his hands cut off, his tongue torn out with pincers, and his body burned alive because he had not kneeled down in the rain to do honour to a dirty procession of monks which passed within his view, at a distance of some fifty or sixty yards. It's likely enough that, Rooted in the woods of France and Norway, there were growing trees, when that sufferer was put to death, already marked by the woodman fate to come down and be sawn into boards, to make a certain movable framework with a sack and a knife in it, terrible in history. It is likely enough that in the rough outhouses of some tillers of heavy lands adjacent to Paris, there were sheltered from the weather that very day rude carts bespattered with rustic mire, 
snuffed about by pigs and roosted in by poultry, which the farmer Death had already set apart to be his tumbrils of the revolution. But the woodman and the farmer, though they work unceasingly, work silently, and no one heard them as they went about with their muffled tread, the rather, for as much as to entertain any suspicion that they were awake, was to be atheistical and traitorous. In England there was scarcely an amount of order and protection to justify much national boasting. Daring burglaries by armed men, highway robberies took place in the capital itself every night. Families were publicly cautioned not to go out of town without removing their furniture to upholster as warehouses for security. The highwayman in the dark was a city tradesman in the light, and being recognized and challenged by his fellow tradesmen whom he stopped in his character of the captain, gallantly shot him through the head and rode away. The male was waylaid by seven robbers and the guard shot three dead, and then got shot dead himself by the other four, in consequence of the failure of his ammunition. After which the male was robbed in peace, that magnificent potentate, the Lord Mayor of London, was made to stand and deliver on Turnham Green by one highwayman, who despoiled the illustrious creature in sight of all his retinue. Prisoners in London gaols fought battles with their turnkeys, and the majesty of the law fired blunderbusses in among them, loaded with rounds of shot and ball. Thieves snipped off diamond crosses from the necks of noble lords at court drawing-rooms, musketeers went into St. Giles's to search for contraband goods, and the mob fired on the musketeers, and the musketeers fired on the mob, and nobody thought any of these occurrences much out of the common way. In the midst of them, the hangman, ever busy and ever worse than useless, was in constant requisition. Now stringing up long rows of miscellaneous criminals and now burning pamphlets at the door of Westminster Hall, today taking the life of an atrocious murderer and tomorrow of a wretched pilferer who had robbed a farmer's boy of sixpence. All these things and a thousand like them came to pass in and close upon the dear old year 1775, environed by them while the woodman and the farmer worked unheeded. Those two of the large jaws and those other two of the plain and fair faces trod with stir enough, and carried their divine rights with a high hand. Thus did the year 1775 conduct their greatnesses and myriads of small creatures, the creatures of this chronicle among the rest, along the roads that lay before them. Chapter 2 The Mail It was the Dover Road that lay, on a Friday night late in November, before the first of the persons with whom this history has business. The Dover Road lay as to him beyond the Dover Mail, as it lumbered up Shooter's Hill, he walked up hill in the mire by the side of the mail, as the rest of the passengers did, not because they had the least relish for walking exercise, under the circumstances, but because of the hill, and the harness and the mud and the mail were all so heavy that the horses had three times already come to a stop, besides once drawing the coach across the road with the mutinous intent of taking it back to Blackheath. Reins and whip and coachman and guard, however, in combination, had read that article of war which forbade a purpose otherwise strongly in favour of the argument that some brute animals are endued with reason, and the team had capitulated and returned to their duty. With drooping heads and tremulous tails they mashed their way through the thick mud, floundering and stumbling between whiles, 
as if they were falling to pieces at the larger joints. As often as the driver rested them and brought them to a stand with a wary whoa, the near leader violently shook his head and everything upon it, like an unusually emphatic horse, denying that the coach could be got up the hill. Whenever the leader made this rattle, the passenger started as a nervous passenger might, and was disturbed in mind. There was a steaming mist in all the hollows, and it had roamed in its forlornness up the hill, like an evil spirit, seeking rest and finding none. A clammy and intensely cold mist, it made its slow way through the air in ripples that visibly followed and overspread one another, as the waves of an unwholesome sea might do. It was dense enough to shut out everything from the light of the coach lamps, but these its own workings in a few yards of road and the reek of the laboring horses steamed into it, as if they had made it all. Two other passengers besides the one were plodding up the hill by the side of the mail. All three were wrapped to the cheekbones and over the ears and wore jackboots. Not one of the three could have said from anything he saw what either of the other two was like, and each was hidden under almost as many wrappers from the eyes of the mind as from the eyes of the body of his two companions. In those two days, travellers were very shy of being confidential on a short notice, for anybody on the road might be a robber or in a league with robbers. As to the latter, when every posting house and alehouse could produce somebody in the captain's pay, ranging from the landlord to the lowest stable nondescript, it was the likeliest thing upon the cards. So the guard of the Dover Mail thought to himself that Friday night in November, 1775, lumbering up Shooter's Hill as he stood on his own particular perch behind the mail, beating his feet and keeping an eye and a hand on the arm chest before him, where a loaded blunderbuss lay at the top of six or eight loaded horse pistols, deposited on a substratum of cutlass. The Dover mail was in its usual genial position, but the guard suspected the passengers, the passengers suspected one another, and the guard, they all suspected everybody else, and the coachman was sure of nothing. But the horses, as to which cattle he could, with a clear conscience, have taken his oath on the two testaments that they were not fit for the journey. Woe, said the coachman, so then, one more pull and you're at the top and be damned to you, for I've had trouble enough to get you to it, Joe. Hello, the guard replied. What o'clock do you make it, Joe? Ten minutes, good, past eleven. My blood ejaculated the vexed coachman, and not a top of shooters yet. Get on with it, you. The emphatic horse cut short by the whip in a most decided negative made a decided scramble for it, and the three other horses followed suit. Once more the Dover mail struggled on, with the jack boots of its passengers swashing along by its side. They had stopped when the coach stopped, and they kept close company with it. If any one of the three had had the hardihood to propose to another to walk on a little ahead into the mist and darkness, he would have put himself in a fair way of getting shot instantly, as a highwayman. The last burst carried the mail to the summit of the hill. The horses stopped to breathe again, and the guard got down to skid the wheel for the descent, and open the coach door to let the passengers in. Joe cried the coachman in a warning voice, looking down from his box. What do you say, Tom? They both listened. I say a horse at a canter coming up, Joe. I say a horse at a gallop, Tom, returned the guard, leaving his hold of the door and mounting nimbly to his place. Gentlemen, 
in the king's name, all of you. With this hurried adjuration, he cocked his blunderbuss and stood on the offensive. The passenger booked by this history was on the coach step getting in. The other two passengers were close behind him and about to follow. He remained on the step, half in the coach and half out of it. They remained in the road below him. They all looked from the coachman to the guard and from the guard to the coachman and they listened. The coachman looked back and the guard looked back and even the emphatic leader pricked up his ears and looked back without contradicting. The stillness consequent on the cessation of the rumbling and laboring of the coach added to the stillness of the night made it very quiet indeed. The panting of the horses communicated a tremulous motion to the coach as if it were in a state of agitation. The hearts of the passengers beat loud enough perhaps to be heard but at any rate, the quiet pause was audibly expressive of people out of breath, and holding the breath, and having the pulses quickened by expectation. The sound of a horse at a gallop came fast and furiously up the hill. The guard sang out as loud as he could roar, Yo there, stand, I shall fire. The pace was suddenly checked, and with much splashing and floundering a man's voice called from the mist. Is that the Dover Mail? Never mind you what it is, the guard retorted, what are you? Is that the Dover Mail? Why do you want to know? I want a passenger if it is. What passenger? Mr. Jarvis Lorry. Our booked passenger showed in a moment that it was his name. The guard, the coachman, and the two other passengers eyed him distrustfully. Keep where you are. The guard called to a voice in the mist. If I should mistake, it could never be set right in your lifetime. Gentlemen of the name of Lorry answer straight. What is the matter? asked the passenger then, with mildly quavering speech. Who wants me? Is it Jerry? I don't like Jerry's voice. If it is Jerry, growled the guard to himself. He's hoarser than suits me as Jerry. Yes, Mr. Lorry. What is the matter? A dispatch sent after you, from over yonder, tea and co. I know this messenger guard, said Mr. Lorry, getting down into the road assisted from behind more swiftly than politely by the other two passengers, who immediately scrambled into the coach, shut the door, and pulled up the window. He, he may come close, there's nothing wrong. I hope there ain't, but I can't make so. Nation sure of that, said the guard in a gruff soliloquy. Hello, you. Well, hello, said Jerry, more hoarsely than before. Come on at a foot pace, do you mind me? And if you got holsters on that saddle of yours, don't let me see your hand go nigh him. For I'm a devil at a quick mistake, and when I make one, it takes the form of lead. So now let's look at you. The figures of a horse and a rider came slowly through the eddying mist, and came to the side of the mail where the passenger stood. The rider stopped, and casting up his eyes at the guard, handed the passenger a small folded paper. The rider's horse was blown, and both horse and rider were covered with mud, from the hoofs of the horse to the hat of the man. And that is where we shall close the book on tonight's episode of Down to Sleep and A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. And that is where we shall close the book on tonight's episode of Down to Sleep. If you would like to hear the rest of this reading, then it's twice as long on Patreon at patreon.com slash down to sleep where you can join our little book club and hear extended readings and there'll be a bonus reading in a few days as there is every week there's two episodes a week on the patreon for supporters of the podcast thank you so much for joining me tonight i hope that this book has helped you relax this reading 
If you are still awake, then why not start this one over from the beginning or use one of our other episodes? We have many, many other readings that you can listen to, and hopefully we will get you there. Until next time, good night.